Good morning. So glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank you all for uh, taking time to come and, and study the Word of God and uh, just uh, see another beautiful uh, tapestry of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory and grace. And uh, just one of the reasons why I wanted to pick that old hymn by a man named William Cooper is uh, really our first major point we're going to look at in the text of 1 Samuel chapter 9, that our God is a providential Father. He's the blessed controller of all things. And one of the things that ought to do for us is cause us to be men who rest, that uh, we can just uh, take a deep breath and know that underneath us today, no matter if everything's turning up roses or you're walking through an incredible trial Underneath you today, according to Deuteronomy 33, 27, are the everlasting arms of the eternal God, who is a sure refuge for His people. Well, this morning, as, as just, just sort of coming into the book of 1 Samuel, let me just sort of paint the broad brushstrokes and give you just a, basically a, just a simple outline. I spend a lot of time helping our young pastors prepare for ordination. And so we have to come, we have to come up with a pretty simple outline for each book of the Bible. And uh, one of the things you guys have already covered here is the failure of the priestly office, uh, the life of Eli in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel. And then secondly, uh, the formation, if you will, of the prophetic office with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapters 3 through 7. And now, uh, just last week you looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8 uh, and, and all the way to the end of this book is the founding of the princely or the kingly office. And you look at uh, chapters 8 to 15 at the tragedy of King Saul and then uh, the establishment and, uh, of King David and his reign from chapters 16 to 31. The chapter that is in front of us today with 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to it may feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant here because with four chapters, we're going to kind of scurry through and try to be very practical with our applications. But this is a, a huge transition uh, in the life of God's people because you have a dying theocracy where the Lord is the king and the theocracy is moving to a monarchy where we're going to have an earthly king. Well, this morning we want to look at this theme of Tall, handsome, and cowardly. And look at the life of uh, King Saul. There you go. Guys, when we're threatened, as even we are today as a nation, fear can lead us to do all kinds of different things. Why did these folks here, you know, we can kind of read the story and say, man, these folks are idiots. But we're so much like them in that they, they wanted to be like the other nations, they wanted to have a king that would deliver them from all of their enemies. And uh, they had a leadership problem because Samuel, the old prophet, and the, the last judge was getting old, and his sons were, were not fit to reign. And they start looking, like most of us do, for a man-centered solution. And as I've read these chapters, 1 Samuel 9 to 12, the one statement that has come back to me again and again and again is a quote from a little Irish lassie, an Irish missionary by the name of Amy Carmichael who served in India back in the 1800s. Beware. Beware what you set your heart upon. 
for it will surely be yours. And one of the things, before we even get into this, you want to stand up on tiptoe and get excited and praise and thank the Lord that He has not given you everything that you've asked for. And you think of some of, uh, you look back and you see some of your stupid prayers. And the Lord in His mercy withheld that that answer and, and said no to you. Because what you see here is a, a faithless people asking God to give them a king when they had a king. And the Lord ended up giving to His people what they wanted in order to show them what they desperately needed. And what they desperately needed was a relationship, a dependent relationship with the Lord. Well, let's look into into 1 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, one of the things I've tried to do as I've walked through here is really try to uh, take more of a God-centered approach to uh, this whole text here on this Savior King being asked for by the name of King Saul. So the first, uh, the first point here is the providence of God and the quest. The providence of God and the quest for a Savior King. So our, our story here begins uh, really, really um, ordinary. Uh, it's uh, uh, quite an interesting story. We, we, uh, you, as you read in here, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zaar, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. So what you've got here is ought to take you right back to the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, there was a man named Samuel. And so we're, we're being introduced now to another key figure in the redemptive story. And uh, just the personal introduction you have uh, of the future Savior King who is revealed. So the future Savior King is now being revealed. And I want to just look at three simple questions here. What's he like? Where is he from? And what is it that he lacks? Well, the first thing is you look in verse 2. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So really what you have here, Saul is Israel's Goliath. Here is a man who's a physical specimen. He's tall, he's handsome. What strikes you when you encounter him? Hey, this guy looks like a leader. He has an impressive uh, physical stature. He had a big body, but just as we're going to see in a minute, he has a small soul. So where where is he from? Well, we see here in verse 1, he, his, his daddy was a man of wealth. So he's from a wealthy family. And we learn something about him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. His hometown is Gebeah. And one of the things this ought to write at this moment encourage all of us. Our God is a God who delights to reverse the fortunes of his people. If you know anything about uh, biblical history, and I've, obviously I've studied this a little bit this week, uh, this ought to immediately take you back to the last chapters in the book of Judges, Judges 19 to 21, where, where the Benjaminites 
basically do something horrific. There's some sexual perverts in their community, and a Levite comes with his, uh, his concubine to their city. And uh, these guys uh, just want to commit just atrocious acts against the man. And uh, the, the guy who's hosting him actually uh, offers this concubine to these, these raving mad men. And basically, they abuse this woman all through the night. And at the end of the, end of the night, the woman dies from the, from the abuse that she takes. The Levite ends up doing something that's horrific. He, he cuts this woman's body all into pieces, and he, and he sends it all out through the, through the people of Israel, all the tribes. And all the tribes of Israel have a convocation, and they decide, hey, we're going to go against the tribe of Benjamin, and, and the, the people are, there's going to be justice because of what happened to this woman. And there's a reason why the tribe of Benjamin was the smallest tribe, because mainly most of the men were killed in this civil war that erupted in, in the nation of Israel. And so one of the things you see here, this is the nature of our God. You say, oh my goodness, man, I, I don't need to hear all that this morning. You know, it sounds like the news. Let me just encourage you with this. The Lord in his mercy is reversing the tables as he often does. He reverses the fortune of people. And today, if you th- are thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what my background is. How can the Lord use me? Is the Lord finished with me? The Lord, his characteristic way is to reverse those fortunes. And he can use you. You begin to see, and Saul actually starts out pretty well. Um, he, he, he turns the tables. And a man from Gibeah, where this atrocious act occurred, now is going to be king over Israel. Now, thirdly, what does he lack? Well, one of the things you're going to see as we walk through this story, and I'm not going to read all the verses of 3 through 27, the rest of chapter 9, is Saul, he lacks spiritual attentiveness and sensitivity. And you can see this, that um, the ordinary nature of this, the thing that really gets at the providence of God, okay, these people are going out, Saul and his servant are going to search for his daddy's asses, his daddy's donkeys, they're going off, and, and, and Saul is so, uh, uh, Gibeah is very close to where Samuel lived, and he doesn't even know the prophet. He, and and uh, Saul's servant has to uh, sort of awaken uh, Saul to, hey, when you're in a time of distress and difficulty, it's probably pretty good to talk to a man of God who might be able to help you find what you're looking for. And so uh, uh, Saul's servant ends up uh, getting them eventually to to Samuel to find out what happened with the donkeys. And one of the things you learn here, and one of, the, one of the big things lacking in King Saul's life, because he doesn't have a relationship with the living God, that he is a man who has no moral courage. No courage. In fact, in just, in just a minute in chapter 10, you're going to see the, um, uh, they've elevated him to the position of king, and Saul's hiding out in the baggage. I mean, he, he doesn't want anything to do with this. He's called to go into battle. He steps back. He's a man who would be prone. He's timid to step back rather than to step forward. Well, there's, there's several things just to learn here about this particular story. And I want to just get at the, uh, uh, the providence point here. But before I do that, a number of you are in very different, uh, you're in different churches and you've got lots of different responsibilities 
One of the things we have to be very careful when it comes to uh, selecting and appointing leadership in any venue, school, business, church, is that one verse that really everything in these first chapters of Samuel is centered around, and I've really tried to hammer this with my children, because left to ourselves, all of us, we judge people by appearances. We judge the book by the cover of the book. And it oftentimes leads us to make very wrong conclusions. For God does not look as man looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And you see this even now with uh, what I have here from uh, Charles Spurgeon, number four. It would greatly profit. It would greatly profit us all if we chose our leaders by their piety, their character, their integrity, their godliness, rather than their cleverness. And uh, this is something that is particularly true in the spiritual arena in the church. Well, B, you say you've got a personal introduction to the, to the future Savior King, the one who's going to come, and his purpose is to deliver God's people from all of their enemies. Uh, now you have a providential encounter. There's nothing in the Bible that's a mistake. You know what the name Saul means? Saul means asked for. Saul means inquired of the Lord. Isn't it interesting? The people of God are asking for a king, and, and, and the, the king that they get, his name is asked for. Well, the, the providence of God revealed. One of the beautiful things in 1 Samuel chapter 9 is that Saul and his servant go off looking for some lost donkeys, and they encounter a preacher who delivers to them the word of God, and encountering that word of God, their life will forever be different. I can still remember when Carl Diggerness and Tom Rotolo came into my dorm room in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. They were wise 19-year-olds, and I was an unwise 18-year-old. And they shared with me the word of God, the word of the Lord, the gospel. And it, I'd heard it before, but it was just my day. And my eyes were opened. I saw my need. And I was born again. I, and, uh, and this is kind of what happens to, uh, well, part of this happens to Saul here. Let me, let's just look at the providence of God revealed. If, as, you, as you look here into the text, if you go down to about verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel... Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And what will he do? He will save my people from the hands of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Well, one of the things here is very, very important and should be incredibly encouraging to you this morning You and I are not in the grip of blind circumstances and forces. Fate does not determine this world. Well, wow, you were sure lucky to get that that raise or to get that position in the company. No, there is not, there's not, no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as fortune. There's no such thing as chance. And one of the things I want you to just 
this is one of the, these Bible words. Is okay, what do we mean by this? What's, and what's the difference between God's sovereignty and God's providence? We love, you know, in our tradition to talk about the sovereignty of God. And one of the ways that I try to describe that to people is God is the blessed controller of all things. And there's going to come a time in your life when you are going to have to, you're going to have to lay back into that in a personal way. One of my seminary professors, his name was Howard Hendricks, and he went all over the world teaching the Bible, talking about God's sovereignty. Well, in the latter years of his life, he contracted cancer. And when he, when he got those words from the physician, he leaned over to his wife, Jean, and he said, Jean, you and I, we've gone all over the world telling people about the sweet teaching of the Bible of the sovereignty of God. Now is our time to live what we claim to believe. So that's, you've got God's sovereignty. He's the blessed controller of all things. A subset of God's sovereignty is his providence. And what, what do I mean by that? Let me, let me just go into some of the, the old men of God and, and what, they've, what they've said about this thing called providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So our God is a God who is governing all of his creatures all over the world today and all of their actions. And one of the things we learn about this does does not arrest the moral agency and the will of man. Men are culpable. They're responsible for their actions. And you see this in Acts chapter 2. This man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan of God. We've got God's sovereignty, God's providence. You nailed to a cross. The blood of the Messiah is on your hands, and you are morally culpable and responsible. How do you have that? A God who's absolutely sovereign and providential, and men who are fully accountable and responsible. We hold those in tension. That's called a theodicy, a... uh, and uh, the, um, one of the things I think is real important here is that we, we just hold those in tension and please don't uh, ask a preacher to tell you to go further than what the Bible does. The Bible holds both of those in tension. I love this one because this particular definition of providence is a little bit warmer. It kind of gets to your heart, not just your head. Uh, this is the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand." If you turn the page over, you, you'll see that this is, this is not something that is to make you a smarter sinner. It's something that is meant to change your life. What, what does it benefit us? What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and upholds them by His providence? There, there, this is a lot here, and I just want to focus on two things. If you believe today that you're not in the, in the grip, of the blind grip of forces, of ominous forces threatening to undo you and your family, but you're in the loving hands of a providential father who works all things after the counsel of his will, here's, here's the benefit of it. You can be patient in adversity. 
If you're going through a time of particular difficulty, you know that whatever the Lord is allowing to come into your life, He is using it to conform you and mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. You can be patient in adversity. Here's another thing I find men like us have a harder time with. Being thankful in prosperity. Are things going well for you in in your work? Are your kids doing well in in school? Are, Are things reasonably going well. I know so many men, they're just looking, they're looking around the corner nervously. You know, the Lord is, you know, fun spells the first three letters of funeral, and the Lord's about to put his thumb down on me. And uh, I know, I know the penny's about to fall, and he's, he, uh, he's going to take something away from me as I turn this corner. That impulse to distrust the fatherly, providential hand of God is in all of us. And we can be thankful in prosperity. And listen to this. With a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature, no creature shall separate us from His love. And for all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. So today, if you're you're unemployed and you're asking the Lord to provide and swing wide a door for effective service and employment for you, if um, someone you love has gotten a really uh, horrific diagnosis, if like one, one of my dear friends here in Memphis who found out yesterday that this three-year-old little girl will probably not live to the age of eight, she has a, a blood disease, what do you do? You can numb the pain. You can uh, do what people in the world do. You can uh, try to escape in various ways. You can deny that there's anything. Just put on a happy face. Or you can do this. This is from Andrew Murray. It is by his will that I am in this very place. In that fact, I will rest. He will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Then he will make this trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends for me to learn in his good time. He will bring me out again how and where he knows. So let me say this. You've got to take yourself up by the nap of the neck and you've got to talk to yourself out of what you know to be true of God and the promises of his word. Listen to Andrew Murray. He concludes. So let me say that I am here. Here, not anywhere else. I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, and for his time. Our times are in His hands. One other uh, application of this. You can see the the uh, uh, Saul here. He's 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 stepping back and he said, "Oh my goodness, what on earth have I gotten into? Meeting this preacher and and him giving me the word of God that I'm going to be the the next king, this king that people are asking for. I'm going to be him." And he's stepping back. And I want to just challenge you with this. One of the things that made me do. Because a number of you, you're young men, and you're going to be tapped on the shoulder to be leaders in the church, to be leaders in different endeavors in our city. And you can see, the, uh, see Saul here uh, stepping back with timidity and fear. And I guess one of the things I want to just tell you of a time when uh, I was reluctantly elevated to a position of influence as a 21-year-old kid. It was Tokyo, Japan. It was 1983. I was a relatively new believer, just uh, learning how to grow in my faith. And 
And uh, I went to Tokyo, Japan to work at a university there called Senshu University and to teach English and to tell people about the gospel. I just wanted to be a participant. I didn't want to lead anything. And uh, I showed up there at the Sunshine City Prince Hotel in downtown Tokyo, and, and this gentleman, balding gentleman with Campus Crusade for Christ, came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Son, you're going to be the leader of these five students, all of whom were older than me, and you're going to step up and you're going to be the leader of, the, of our work to try to reach Central University with the gospel through teaching English. And I said, time out, time out. I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't sign up to be a leader. Uh, I, I signed up to be a participant. I, I just want to participate. You know, the, all these people are older than me. And so I'm doing, I'm doing a, a saw maneuver. I'm stepping back. And one of the things that I learned there, and it's, it's the next chapter in, in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, wherever it is that God calls you to be a husband, to be a father, to be a grandfather, to be an executive, to be an elder, a deacon, to be whatever it is, wherever God calls, this is bedrock right here, wherever he calls, he equips Wherever he calls, he provides. And this is very, very important. Well, um, we see now the word of God is proclaimed in verse 27 uh, of, of chapter 9. And they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passes on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So he gives him a specific word about the kingship and what it looks like for him to become king. So uh, we move now from the providence of God and the Savior King being revealed, and all this is happening privately. Now we move in chapter 10 to the Spirit of God preparing this Savior King. So now you've got the Spirit of God and the preparation of the Savior King. Well, in, in the first 16 verses, really this sort of breaks down into two main sections, verses 1 to 16 and then verses 17 uh, to 27. You've got the private preparation of the, of the Savior King and then the public proclamation of the Savior King. And, and there's a lot of fill in the blanks here. If you miss something, just come see me afterward. We, we'll chat about it, okay? The private preparation of the Savior King. So you look here in, in chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on, on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. So basically what you have here is the anointing. He, he anoints Saul and prepares him to be king. One of the things that you have to do when you start looking at these biblical themes, this ought immediately, as a New Testament Christian, you ought immediately have you go to 1 John chapter 2. When you uh, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born again. You're giving the gift of repentance that leads to life. And the Spirit of God comes to live within you. And you receive what is called the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
The Apostle John said, hey, you really don't need Sandy or someone like me to stand up and teach you. You've got the Spirit of God living within you to read and study the Word of God and to teach and admonish one another. And so much of that happens uh, in the studies and the smaller groups in this room. But the anointing is the first way that the king is prepared for his work. Then one of the things the Lord does, I mean, he's been doing it for his people ever since time began. He gives his people signs, assuring signs. We have the sign of of the covenant, of of the Lord's Supper. And when when you take that bread and you drink the cup, you remember. You remember how horrific your sin is that the perfect, innocent Son of God had to suffer. But you also remember how deep the Father's love is for you, that He must love you so to allow His only begotten to suffer so. The Lord assures us with the signs. There are three particular signs. I won't go into all the details, but there's uh, in the first part of chapter 10, there's um, all kind of very specific uh, signs that would give Saul assurance that the Lord was obviously in all of this, but the main way that God prepares his Savior, King, and Prince is two things. The Spirit. The Spirit and the Word. Spirit and Word. There is, uh, in in one of the questions uh, about going deeper that I have for you, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul receives the power of the Spirit. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you. And, uh, and people are going to be saying, is Saul one of the prophets? It, it, Saul's going to be prophesying and, uh, as the Spirit of God rushes upon him. And one of the things that he's going to be speaking is the Word of God. So we, one of the things that's really, really important here is that we keep in, uh, the, the Spirit and the Word together. We need the Holy Spirit, and oftentimes many folks in our tradition, we're afraid of the Holy Spirit, and we we need to embrace the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who shines the spotlight on Jesus Christ and leads believers into a knowledge of the truth, the liberating truth of God's Word. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, according to John 16. Well, the Spirit and the Word are together, and this is a caution from the commentary on Dale Davis. One cannot help but think this union of word and spirit is a word in season for the contemporary church in America. Many people crave dramatic signs of the Spirit's power, but have little enthusiasm for common obedience to the Lord's word. One of the teachings that we have to recover in our day and age is the sufficiency of the word of God. The the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and equips the man or woman of God in difficult days. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so we need to keep these things together. It's the way that the Lord prepares uh, His servant. Well, one of the things that uh, is important to acknowledge here, when the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, uh, he is not converted. There's many evidences of an unconverted, unchanged heart in the life of the Apostle Paul. But in some way, the, uh, the Spirit uh, works in Saul's life. And uh, he speaks and he prophesies in a minute. He's going to do a mighty deliverance uh, through the work of the Spirit. 
Well, the second part of chapter 10, the public proclamation of the Savior King, you see uh, in, in verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of, out of Egypt, I delivered you uh, from the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, but you have rejected your God. Samuel just keeps hammering the people of God. You've rejected the Lord as king and asking for an earthly king. And then he says it to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There, there is none like him among all the people. And in, in, in verse 24, There is none like him among all the people, and all the people shouted, Long live the king. Well, one of the things that you see in here, in this little section here of the public proclamation of the Savior King, is that the people of God, they do something that was often common in those times. They cast lots to to determine the will of God. And the lot falls to the tribe of Benjamin, and they start trying to find Saul. Saul is is hidden in the baggage. He doesn't want anything to do with this. He's very cowardly. And, uh, And so one of the things you see here is that the people of God need the help of the Lord, the heavenly king, to find the earthly king that they have chosen. And so the Lord has to tell Samuel where, where Saul is. One of the things I want to just sort of encourage you with here in verse 19, but today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Friends, one of the things I want you to, to, to hear from this, the place to go to in bedrock is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. I shall lack nothing. Here's something that one of the most important disciplines, this is one of the hardest things in our lives. Everything is necessary that God sends. This is, this is not from Dick Kane, I'll tell you that. This is from John Newton. Psalm 23, verse 1. Everything is necessary that God sends. Here comes the hard part. Nothing is needful that he withholds. You're married, and you want to have children. And for whatever reason, the Lord does not enable you to conceive and have children. Nothing is needful that he withholds. You have your heart set on a particular job opening, and the Lord withholds it. You know, one of the things I've learned when the Lord, when the Lord closes a door, don't put your hand on the doorknob and try to rattle it open. The Lord is protecting you. I've seen it in my own life and journey when God slammed a door and I've tried to rattle it open and and looking back now and seeing that the Lord in his protecting providence was guarding and protecting me from something that I did not see. Well, the response of the people in the last part of 1 Samuel chapter 10 uh, is is very divided. Men of valor went with, went with Saul down to Gibeah, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him. How can this man save us? Well, you see here, one of the things that this ought to just echo forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate king that all of this is pointing to. This man saved others. Why can't he save himself? You know, how can this man, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? How can Jesus Christ save us? Let me, let me just encourage you. Did, you. did you see that? It says, men of valor whom, whom, whose hearts God had touched. 
A number of you are not at second. Some of you are, and we're grateful for, for all of you that are here. But let me just tell you, as a pastor of someone who's been a church planter and been a, a, a solo pastor in churches and on staff of a church like Second Now, your pastor, he needs a band of brothers whose hearts God has touched, men who are willing to pray, to pray for God's work, men who are personally willing to get their hands dirty and participate in God's work, men who are personally willing to take part One of the things that's so easy to diagnose problems, as you know in business, it's a whole different deal to provide some solutions. I had to learn this as a young man, as a young youth pastor over at First of Ann. I love to shoot down the clay pigeons of my senior pastor until he, his name was Dwayne Litvin, and he said, son, wise 26-year-old that I was, don't be shooting down my clay pigeons of ideas any longer until you have a solution. You bring a solution. Don't identify the problem. It was a good awakening for me as a young young pastor. Well, uh, on the next page, so we've looked at at the providence of God. We've looked at the Spirit of God that equips and prepares the man of God to help to extend the kingdom. And now we look at the kingdom of God and the work of the Savior King. The kingdom of God and the work of a savior king. So in in chapter 11, uh, we're going to go to fighting. We're going to get in the middle of of a battle here. First of all, you're going to see in the first four verses that the enemies of God are threatening the people of God. Nahash the Ammonite. The Ammonites are are threatening the the people of Jabesh Gilead. And basically, he said, uh, uh, this was the impetus of the request for a king. And uh, Nahash is, is threatening the, uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead, basically saying, hey, we want to build a treaty. We want to establish a treaty with you. And, J- and, and Nahash says, okay, that's fine. Uh, here's the deal. We're going to gouge all the men's right eyes out. <laughs> We're going to humiliate you and, and so that you will never be able to fight. You'll be hiding behind the shield and you won't be able to see what's coming at you. And, uh, and so uh, just... It, it, the, the folks of Jabesh Gilead send out sort of a memo to uh, all the tribes of, of Israel. And, uh, and, and you're going to see here in just a minute how uh, Saul responds in righteous indignation. So the enemies of God are threatening the people of God. Let me just, let me just drive home a couple things here. We have a real enemy. You probably didn't wake up this morning and walk in uh, to church here thinking, I've got an enemy who is seeking to... Kill, steal, and destroy me and everything I hold dear. We have a real enemy who is hostile. He's hostile to God. He's hostile to God's purposes. And he's hostile to God's people. And you see here, these men of Jabesh Gilead, who would be willing to submit to this indignity, and this is from an old commentary on this portion of Scripture from William Blakey. Uh, I got this on Google, Google Books We see here the sad effects of sin and careless living. In lowering man's spirits, sapping courage, and discouraging noble effort. Oh, it is pitiable to see men's taming submission to a vile master. Yet how often this sight is repeated. 
that we submit to all the wiles and the temptations and the accusations of our enemy. Can you, you, you want to serve the Lord? Who do you think you are? Don't you remember way back here when you did X, Y, or Z? And the, and the accuser of the brethren comes to you to accuse you and, and to make you ineffective in your witness and testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have to resist him, standing firm in our faith and say, devil, trouble me not. You don't know the half of it, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you arm yourself with the armor, and uh, that's uh, a subject for another time. Well, the enemies of God threaten the people of God, and the king responds. This word this, of the threat of, of Nahash the Ammonite comes to Saul in, in verse 5 of chapter 11. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them to pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Well, isn't it interesting? The Spirit of God here bringing about a great reversal. That salvation, as I've already told you, salvation and deliverance for the people of God is coming out of this little community called Gebeah, the, the hometown of Saul. And he slaughters the oxen. Remember, I told you about the Levite in Genesis 19 and 20. People would recognize the significance. The oxen are slaughtered. They're sent throughout all the the tribes of Israel. And it's interesting. You, You go through the Bible and you see two things very intimately connected. The Spirit of God and God's wrath on evil. The evil that is eating the insides out of the creation that the Lord loves. And Saul gets angry, this righteous indignation. Now, you know, uh, let us be slow to anger. We model that. uh, That's the nature of our God. He's a God who is slow to anger. And we're to to be angry and sin not. And so oftentimes, the, the, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteous life that God requires. But listen to this from the golden mouth preacher in the fourth century, John Chrysostom. He who is angry without cause sins. But he who is not angry when there is cause sins. You get that? He who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. So when you get angry, one of the questions to ask yourself, well, you probably have a block goal. I've got a, I've got a, a, a teenage son. I know a little bit about that, and acorns do not fall far from trees. So where does this come from, (laughs) this problem with anger? Normally, there's a block goal. You're defending something. So often when we get angry, we're defending our wounded pride. But here, Saul is, is about to defend the people of God, the heritage of the Lord. And then, in verses 8 to 11, he musters up an army. He mobilizes an army to work a great deliverance. He musters them at Besek. The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. 
One of the things here for us just to pause and note is we can be uncomfortable with the militaristic uh, metaphors of the Christian life. It is a race to be run, but it is a battle to fight. And one of the things that we have to remember that uh, we're, we're in for a spiritual battle today. And as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, even our proclamation of the good news is, is a battle. But one of the things we've got to remember, this is something the church has, has lost many times in its history. It is not with swords loud clashing, nor with a roll of stirring drums, but it is with the deeds of love and mercy that the heavenly kingdom comes. Well, what happens at the end of this chapter, verses 12 to 15? After this mighty deliverance that Saul does the work of, he he begins to do. Here's the Savior King who's going to deliver us from our surrounding enemies. And here's the first victory. The people of God worship and renew their vows. It says in verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Well, the significance of Gilgal. You go back to Joshua chapter 4 and you see that the people of God crossed on dry land through the Jordan River and they took some stones out of the bottom of the Jordan River, the memorial stones, 12 of them for each tribe, and they took them out and they placed them uh, at Gilgal and there they constituted their nation in the, in, the, in the promised land. And so that's the significance of Gilgal. And they renew their vows. They renew the kingdom. Here they begin to step back and realize, hey, we've got, we've got to step back from this, this, our longing to have someone else to rule over us other than the Lord. We, we are the Lord's people, and the Lord is going to be the king. And our earthly king is going to be the vice regent and the prince. Friends, we serve a savior king who's triumphed over all of his and our enemies at the cross. The battle is over. Well, I'll I'll close with a few practical points on that in just a moment, but let's let's close it out here in chapter 12. Well, at this point, the prophet starts to preach him. Chapter 12, this is the last sermon by Samuel. And uh, and again, uh, he goes to meddling, But he goes to Medellin talking about the grace of God. The grace of God in the renewal of the kingdom. The grace of God and the renewal of the kingdom. So one of the things he has has them do is he has them first of all look back. Look back. Look back and see the history of God's grace. Look back and see the history of God's grace. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus here, it is a regular, important discipline in your life to look back and remember what it was like to be lost without hope and without God. To go back and and think about what are the things that God has saved you from. And and just, Lord, dissolve my heart. Help me to worship you today and serve you in in a day out of gratitude. Not because I'm having to earn your favor, because I have your favor. So you look back at the history of God's grace, and you see it in a couple different ways. First of all, in the first five verses of 1 Samuel chapter 12, God's grace is seen in the provision of a godly leader. 
Samuel, has, he says, hey, have I defrauded you? Have I taken anyone's donkeys? Uh, hey, I, I, God be my witness. You know, I've conducted myself as a man of integrity. I've, I've not defrauded or oppressed you or taken anything from you. And you remember back in chapter 8 when Sandy was, was speaking to us that you're going to have a king and he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take this and that. And my friends, one of the things that we see here in Samuel's life is a, 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 a leader who serves. And when we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus in our marriage, when we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus in our homes, in our families, our extended family, in our workplaces, we look at him and Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Well, God's grace in the provision of a godly leader God's grace seen in the lives of your forefathers. Just look back at our history. You you go back and you see uh, God's people were in distress. They call out and the Lord sends the deliverer. And Samuel kind of rehashes, rehashes all of that uh, for the people to see that God time and time again has been your king who has delivered you from all of your enemies. So you look back and you see the history of God's grace. Look up. Look up and, 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 and see the fuel, the fuel of God's grace. The fuel of God's grace, when you begin to see God's riches that have been given to you at Christ's expense, you see God's grace, what it does, it fosters something in you. It fosters repentance and renewal. And you see in verse, uh, look down at verse 17. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So this was a sermon with, a, with an electric light show. You know, This is a, this is a, a time of the early summer, and um, this is a time when rain did not occur in Israel. And said, so that you know that what I'm speaking to you is the word of God. Uh, I'm calling forth for rain and thunder. And so it just scares the willies. I mean, you know, would that us preachers, we had a little bit of that capacity. You know, it might help it out a little bit, you know, a little, little show and tell. You want to see how good and big and great God is? Here's a little thunder and a little lightning. Um, and, uh, and so the people fear It says that all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And guys, one of the things just to remember about fear, I don't know about you, but uh, oftentimes as a man pleaser, someone who struggles with the idol of people pleasing and the approval of others, uh, the fear of man always leads to a snare. And the only tonic is to fear the Lord. And that's just that reverential awe to stand in awe of him and give him the honor and obedience that is due his name. So we look up and we see the fuel of God's grace. It it should mark us. Repentance is not just something you do to enter the kingdom of heaven and become a Christian. Martin Luther, when he nailed it up, this 95 thesis at the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, the first thesis is this. When Jesus Christ came preaching the gospel saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He meant this that every single day in the life of a Christian is to be one of repentance. So today, what do I need to do as a man of God, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor? I need to rediscover the implications of the gospel for my life. 
I need to repent of the things I'm looking to for significance and validation and turn again to the King of Heaven and look only to Him. Well, we got to look ahead. Look ahead. This kingdom, this kingdom that is going forward, the kingdom of grace and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom that is within us, that we, we, God has given us some means, the means of grace. And we see it here as we close out our, our section of Scripture this morning. There are two particular means, two particular resources that God has given to you and me that we must avail ourselves of. Prayer. Prayer and the Word. And you see in verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Isn't this a beautiful thing? You know, when you quit trying to cover, and my wife can always tell when I'm getting defensive, one of the beautiful things of the gospel is that it enables you to get your Star Wars defense shields you know, when someone comes to say, hey, you know, when you said this, this was, this was wrong and it was very hurtful. Whoop! Who do you think you are to rebuke me right now? You know, uh, you want a piece of me? Come on. Um, one of the beautiful things of the gospel is it enables you to get your, your defense shields down. And you always, if someone comes today at work to kind of say, hey, this was not right and we've got to get a better job and get a better handle on this. There's a kernel of truth. It's ask the Lord, give me humility. Show me the kernel of truth. In my wife's comment to me, help me not to write her off. Lord, give me the kernel of truth. Change me. Help me not to be so defensive. Uh, And it says in verse 23. Well, let's go back to verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make make you a people for himself. Why is it today? Why is it today that you can be assured that the Lord will never forsake you? There was one who was forsaken of his father on Calvary's tree. And his cry went up single echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation. That of the lost, no son should ever use those words of desolation. No matter what comes in your life, you will never be forsaken of your father. Because he was forsaken, you will never be forsaken. And what that does, verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me, Samuel says, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. In God's kingdom... We need someone who will pray with and for us. Will you be that man? Will you stand in the breach and, and, and lift up God's people? Lift up the needs of your family, of your brothers in, in, in the Lord here? Uh, also, we need the word. Samuel says, I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things the Lord has done for you. Well, guys... One of the things I think is really, really uh, important is um, to look with me, just as we conclude here, at your discussion questions. If you've got that sheet, um, I want to just call your attention to, to, to something here. This portion of Scripture, 
we can pull out all these nice little platitudes, things that, that, that are applicable to our lives. But this portion of the Bible, just like all portions of the Bible, is about one subject, according to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. It's a, it, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is all about one subject, the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the glories to follow of his everlasting kingdom. So one of the things that you do on this, I, I use these four questions. If you listen to me preach or teach, you're going to see these four questions always coming up. Where If you parachute into Leviticus, into the Psalms, into John's gospel, these four questions right here. If you don't know how to read the Bible devotionally for yourself, four questions right here. What do you see in the text for which you can praise the Lord? Start with God, just like what I've tried to model for you today. Start with the Lord not with yourself. What do I need to do today? No. What does this passage reveal about the nature of God? And I've I've got a couple things. Let me just read one of them. Our heavenly king refuses to forsake his rebellious and idolatrous people. And you stop right there. Lord, thank you. Thank you for not forsaking me. Thank you for not giving me the things that I thought I needed in order to show me what I desperately need. Uh, Then, number two, What sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions result in us when we forget this about the Lord, that the Lord is the one true living heavenly king? Well, in unbelief, I persist in what I think I I want rather than trusting God to give me what I truly need. I give my heart and my allegiance to other loves and other masters who do nothing but enslave me and cause despair. Just like the people of Israel did here with, with with an earthly king. And here it is. This is what will warm your heart. This is what will set you free from the bondage of being a Pharisee, a moralistic, self-righteous person. This is where the heat is. This is where the joy in the Christian life is. How does this passage, 1 Samuel 9 to 12, point me to Jesus Christ, His person, His work, and His teachings? And what I want to do here is... I want to just sort of just walk you through what I've got here. The failings of Israel's first human king remind us that there's only one who perfectly executes the office of a king. All other human deliverers will ultimately fail us. And listen to what the Westminster Shorty Catechism has to say. How does Christ execute the office of a king? He executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We have a perfect king who subdued our restless, idolatrous heart and wooed us to himself. And now he's committed to defend us and preserve us against all of his enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is our king. This is King Jesus. We have a priest who is greater than Samuel. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Guys, he's been up all night praying for you. That's how much he loves you. And that ought to give you great joy and comfort. Whatever problem you've got to solve today, you're not alone. He's with you. He's given you His Spirit. And He's interceding for us. We're weak. We're sinful. We're faltering. We're His covenant-breaking people. These people back in Israel's day here, they don't have anything on us. But yet still, He loves us and woos us to Himself. When you think about that, there's a lot of implications. It's important to ask now, how would I live differently? And This is what I want for you today. As you leave from this place, to to be thinking about, okay, one thing. I've given you a lot of stuff here. What's one thing? One way that I would live differently if I knew in my heart 
that I serve the living, heavenly King of glory who rules and defends and preserves me. How can, how can I serve Him? One way that I would live differently. Here's just a couple things I said about myself. I would, I would more consistently heed the call of the gospel to focus not on outward appearance, but on the true condition of the heart, mine and that of others. I would rest in God's providential care for me, just as God moves in a mysterious way. I would rest in God's providential care for me, and I would be less prone to fear and anxiety. Remember that second verse we just sang? Let me close with this. What are you afraid of right now? What one thing are you afraid of right now? Listen to William Cooper, a man who struggled with with mental stability, but one of the greatest English poets ever. You fearful saints. You fearful saints. Fresh courage take. The clouds, those ominous clouds, you so much dread. They're big with mercy. Big with the Lord's mercy. And they shall break in blessings on your head. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, would you take the truths of your word and would you drive them home to our hearts? And today, Lord, as we think about you being such a providential, gracious King who who calls us and equips us and provides for us, as we think about these things, would you give us joy? Would you give us a new resolve to have a singular eye to serve the King of glory and of grace and Him alone? We commit ourselves to you today and ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's blessings to you.